Warning, this episode contains spoilers, coarse language, and... <laughs> Once upon a time, on a sad valentine, in a place known as Mine, a legend began, every woman and man would always remember the time. And those who remained were never the same You could see the fear in their eyes Once every year as the 14th draws near There's a hush all over the town I hate remakes For the legend they say on a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know I love remakes of the horror from long time ago And no one will know As the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago Welcome everybody to part one of episode 15 of I Hate Love Remakes. I am Noel and joining me as always is Evie. I wish Cab Calloway were still alive and he could adopt me. And I'd be his kid. And I'd be Evie Calloway. It'd be so cool. Who's Cab Calloway? Cab Calloway, he sang Minnie the Moocher. He's oh. like this really great artist. I think jazz is what you would lump him in with, but he was a, like a scat singer. What was Minnie the Moocher? Go look it up on YouTube. It's a cartoon. It's awesome. Okay. Nostalgia Chick just did a review of it, actually, which is how I like, got back into that and was like, holy crap, this is awesome. Okay. I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I have nothing to add. I haven't seen many of the major. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the Mountain Dew to process into my system. <laughs> mm. That's right. Your Mountain Dew has caffeine. Yes. Ours doesn't. Really? Yeah. The only stuff that has caffeine is like the Coke and the Pepsi or root beer doesn't have caffeine. Um, Most of the root beers down here don't. Yeah, but no, our Mountain Dew doesn't have caffeine. The only ones that really have caffeine are, are Coke, Pepsi, Mountain Dew, and Dr. Pepper. Yeah, our Dr. Pepper doesn't have caffeine either. Really? Yeah. Do you guys like have some tougher regulations on it up there? I, it must be, because when we first got Red Bull, it had way less caffeine than the American one did. Hmm. And we got taken away. <laughs> Off-topic tangent. <laughs> All right. Uh, so do you want to introduce our special guest this episode? she can introduce herself but if you follow her on twitter she's that bitch who tweets in haiku love you too evie what's up baby now you're required to introduce yourself in the form of a haiku <laughs> don't think she won't i actually did promise noel that i would not speak in haiku during this show so i'm keeping to my word my only professional published piece of writing is a haiku about crickets that's actually quite impressive <laughs> It was like some kind of a Young Writers of Minnesota book. So <laughs> That's still impressive. I've never been published. So introduce yourself, bitch who tweets in haiku. Well, I'm Matilda Hare, also known as Mac. I run a blog, Mac's Back, in which I review books of all sorts. And beyond that, I have had enough caffeine this morning to revive a dead body. <laughs> Zool, motherfucker. Zool! Also, I would have you know that she says she reviews books of all sorts, but it's teen lit that she usually reviews. The good, bad, and ugly. You should just, like, out of nowhere, like, review a Dostoevsky or something. <laughs> <laughs> 
She really should. Really screw people up. Yeah. My uh, review journal of Obsessive Completist, I just did all this random shit that I watched on TV, Chuck 24 and all that stuff, and suddenly I drop in like Dostoevsky novels. <laughs> and I do the entire Akira Kurosawa. It's like, wait, where did that come from? Ah, the ether, I suppose. <laughs> so you have my congratulations. That's awesome. Dude, I'm totally lending you my copy of Ulysses now. You know I own stuff, right? <laughs> you own Ulysses? I'm pretty sure it's somewhere with my classics. I, have you not seen my bookshelves? Yeah, I keep telling you you should double stack because you're an idiot who ends up needing more and more bookshelves because you don't double stack. I double stack. You know what? Shut your face. <laughs> well, see, no double stacks. I'm currently going through and replacing them all with Kindles because I just don't have the space for it anymore. Blasphemy. <laughs> hey, let the man have what he wants book-wise. Don't sass him. Fine then. And I've also never read Ulysses. I tried reading it. And how'd that go for you? We shall not speak of that. Now you have to. <laughs> so anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I love tangents. These are great. We're off to a rollicking start. Well, hopefully this won't be like the last Tessa episode. We're like 40 minutes in. Let's move to the synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> That's her fault for being adorable. I got seven outtakes out of that. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> so Evie, you want to tell us what we're covering this episode? This episode, we're going to be covering the uh, 1981 My Bloody Valentine, and then next episode, we'll be covering the 2009 remake of it. My Bloody Valentine 3D. Unless you're not wearing the stupid glasses, which they give you the option of on DVD. <laughs> yeah. So the original 1981 was directed by George Mahalka and written by Stephen A. Miller and John Beard. And I am not too familiar with either of these. I, I know that George Mahalka kind of went into low-budget indie films and a lot of TV directing. And th this kind of seems to be like the only thing that people hold up as like the pinnacle of his career. He's directed like dozens of other things after this, but this is like the only one that people keep going back to. Well, you look at some, like, that's just what ends up with some... It uh, happens that, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, plus, Good you word. know, George Mikhailo... I can't <laughs> pronounce his last I name. I think it's Mahalka, I'm not sure. Uh, it's Hungarian. He directed Bullet to Beijing, so... And then there's John Beard, the screenwriter, who only has written three other things aside from this. One of which mm -hmm. is Happy Birthday to Me, which was another pretty good 1981 horror film. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I'm not really... <laughs> I haven't seen the others. Ditto, so... So yeah, so this is a film made by people we don't know who we've never seen anything else from. So no other additional commentary yeah, there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Stephen A. Miller is a producer... But he managed to get story credit because he had the idea. Mm -hmm. Anywho, I guess we better move into the synopsis. Valentine Bluffs is a mining town where almost every man enters a life in the mines the moment they get out of high school. T.J. Hanneker escaped that life and made for the coast, but when all his plans fell apart, he returned to the town, tail between his legs, and discovered his girlfriend, Sarah, was now on the arm of his best friend, Axel. The two friends are pitted against one another over the girl they both love. Twenty years ago, the town suffered a tragedy when a methane explosion went off in the mines, burying a group of workers in the tunnels while everyone else was busy at a Valentine's Day party on the surface. It took six weeks of digging before Harry Warden was found to be the only survivor. He had gone mad, cannibalizing his dead co-workers. A year later, on Valentine's Day, he escaped the institution and killed the supervisors he blamed for the explosion, cutting out their hearts and putting them in boxes of chocolates. Time has moved on, and Harry Warden is now little more than a story parents use to keep their kids in line. While the old generation is hesitant, the kids of the town feel the time is right to throw a new Valentine's Day party. 
It's not long before the sheriff and the mayor are having to tear down the decorations because of a series of murders where a man in a mining suit and gas mask starts picking people off with a pickaxe, leaving their hearts in boxes of chocolates. With the official party cancelled, the kids, unaware of the hushed-up murders, decide to hold the party in secret at the mines. After Axel and TJ get into another fight where both are rejected by Sarah, the killer starts working through the kids at the party, eventually pursuing a few final victims through the tunnels themselves. In the end, we find out Harry Warden died several years ago in an asylum, and that the new killer is Axel, who, as a child, was forced to watch as his father was killed by Harry. During the final fight, Axel is caught in another cave-in. Despite Diggers coming to his rescue, he cuts off his own arm, laughing and shrieking as he runs deeper into the shadows of the mines. So, Evie, do you recommend this movie? Yeah, I do. I might be the only one and I don't care. I like this movie. I think this is one of the slasher movies that kind of gets overlooked and people should really go and rediscover it. I like it sort of the same way that I like Assault on Precinct 13, though I don't think it's as good as that one. Though I do have to put a caveat on it, which is that I only saw the theatrical cut because that was the only one that was available. I didn't. There was no unrated that I could get online. I haven't either. I, I did find a, a website that showed what all the cuts were with pics, screen mm -hmm. grabs, and all that stuff. But yeah, I don't have the DVD that has the unrated cut on it myself. Yeah. Yeah, no, I only saw the theatrical release too, so. So that's all we're reviewing, so it's fine. But yeah, At least no, we're upfront I, about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I totally recommend it. I don't know what it is, but I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. There was enough time to get to know the characters and everything. I think it's a good slasher, and I think it's better than something like Friday the 13th, which I still don't get why people like it, but whatever. Mac, do you recommend this movie? I would, actually. It's very, very much a B-movie, but delightfully so. I found the characters, just like Evie said, to be well-developed. And honestly, despite the fact that a lot of them are idiots, <laughs> they're actually rather endearing. It was just a lot of fun to watch, even if it got kind of hammy at points. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. I also recommend this film. As a slasher film, it's actually really quite well made with a great looking killer and nice photography and editing in it. it. Really clever kills, even though with the theatrical version, they pull out a lot of the gory hits of the kills. I actually think that works in its favor because it feels more real and it feels more rounded and it's not about the bloody impact of the kills as it is about the consequences of murder and all that stuff. And this is a surprisingly intelligent horror film that actually has a really good deep character story with the old TJ returning from the coast where he tried to go off and the be West his own coast. man. Yeah. Well, I just said the coast, so the West well, Coast. Well, there's yeah. different coasts in Canada. We, okay. They're on the East Coast, and this is on the West Coast. Okay, so I'm he, returned from, he returned from the West Coast, a complete failure at trying to be his own man. And it's just this great struggle, and they set him up as a great red herring of, this guy could be the killer, and they keep playing up, he could be the killer. And even knowing who the killer is, watching it a second time, it's fascinating because you get to kind of see it from Axel's point of view and you really see how intelligently structured this script is in terms of the emotional drive for why this guy is killing and why he decides to kill who he kills. It's a really clever character piece. I like a lot of the supporting cast because they feel real. These feel like real people in a real mining town. Definitely. They aren't going to win any acting awards, but they feel authentic and there's genuine depth there. I really like this movie. I hold this up as one of the best of the slasher movies. You couldn't tell, but I was nodding the entire time you were talking. I don't think it's as good as Scream or Halloween. 
Oh, but definitely. I'd say it's like but, number three right behind them. Oh, yeah. No, like it always shocks me when people are like, Friday the 13th is so good. I'm like, no, it's stupid. This is good. Friday the 13th could be fun. It could be fun, but it's not smart at all. It's not. It, it's a good fun ride, but this one is a genuine. This one actually has things to say and has a yeah. good story and good characters and it pulls you in. It's exactly like you said. It's a character piece mm-hmm. that happens to be a slasher. And on top of that, the slasher element is executed really well. Yeah. So it's a good character piece and it's a good slasher film and they work together in harmony really well. So open discussion. So what else do we agree on? (laughs) Um, I really like this movie. We're done. (laughs) I'm really jazzed that you guys like it because I thought I was going to be the only one who's like, I like this movie. This one, ever since I saw it as a teenager, has has been one of my favorites. That's why I'm glad we got to cover it. Actually, that's kind of why I've been very hesitant to watch the remake, too, but we'll get to that. (laughs) Yeah, we will. (laughs) Can I just pause it right from the beginning that the blonde's perfect hair, once she rips off the mining mask, is absolutely hilarious? Yes, the opening scene with with the, yeah, I love how it's just this creepy thing of just these two miners going down the caves and then suddenly half-naked woman. I do like the fact that at some of the beginning shots, they are using the Dutch angle but not to the point where it's like Battlefield Earth. Yeah. What I like about that opening sequence, too, is like right instantly up front, they're fetishizing the killer. Mm-hmm. Where she's like stroking the mask and everything. Almost and... like a hand job or something. Yeah, yeah. but it's yeah. like instantly making this a distinct visual and like fetishizing it. It feels very intentional. Mm-hmm. And it's just really clever and dirty, but in a good way. I also really like, uh, they have a music cue that they use a couple of times, and it sounds like a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Like the way that it goes bump bump and it sounds like a heartbeat. I love that. And they have it well, right in the beginning. Well, because hearts all over this film. The heart is like exactly. the key motif With of the film. has the heart tattoo yeah. that the pickaxe ends up going right through. Adding the heart sound to the soundtrack fits that motif of this is a film all about hearts. I mean, even the central theme core of the film is a killer with a broken heart. As I mentioned, it is interesting to watch this film kind of from Axel's point of view. Initially, he's just killing because he wants to get the party shut down. Because Valentine's Day to him is the day he watched his father get brutalized in front of him. And so he's just killing first. Let's let's the girl in the mine. I'm not sure what that how that ties into it, but that feels like maybe that's the trigger of things or that either could feel like a scene that was added later in the shooting. I honestly think it was probably something that was added later yeah. because the trigger was the return of the Valentine stance after, what was it, 19 years? Yeah, and then also, you know, there was the whole line later on, if you know the rule, no ladies in the mine. Wait, what about the lady who was working in the mine? She wasn't working. I Actually, they as... did, though, no, because when they're coming back up on the carts, they say, hey, where is she? Well, a rookie's got to learn sometime. No, it's he. It's the You end up with the kid in the bar later on who, when they're all showering, he comes in and goes, hey, why'd you guys leave me back there? Oh, okay. So, yeah, then that entire opening scene was likely something that was just added in post. Ah, see, I I just disagree. If you look at the girl, she bears a striking resemblance to Sarah. Okay. And it could be that Sarah just isn't having... So I just took it as, once you find out it's Axel, it's like, well, Sarah won't sleep with him, so he finds the surrogate for Sarah, brings her down there, because she's probably a hooker. Hmm. and she figures that's his kink, and to get paid, she'll do whatever. And then there's the heart thing that triggers him. Yeah, and that could be the trigger that sets him off, and then later yeah. on, the whole Valentine's Day dance. But then you, with the Valentine's Day dance, his main target is the woman who's running the dance. Mm-hmm. The one who he kills in the Maybe, laundromat, right? Mabel. Yeah. And 
then that shuts things down. But then when he, when, because Axel's in the bar scene when they pressure the bartender into letting them use the mines. Mm -hmm. And so then he kills the bartender for allowing that to happen. Then it's only at the party when he gets rejected by Sarah and, you know, he's been drinking, he's going to this huge emotional state. Only then does he start killing his friends. And you even get that great scene where Axel just goes out to the back of the building. And he's just crying and he's all half drunk. And oh, this yeah. is a killer who's Take drunk. That seat against the wall. <laughs> this is an angry, drunk killer who just had his heart broken. So he's yeah. finally lashing out and taking out his friends. Yeah, the first time you watch it, you genuinely feel bad for the guy because of Sarah's essential outright rejection of him. Mm -hmm. And so he goes there. He's drunk. He's sad. And it's honestly heart-wrenching yeah and that's the final break and you watch it the second time and you totally see it the trigger for killing his friends mm -hmm. and you can even see as you're watching the entire sequence down in the mines you can see where he's leaving and doing things to set up and when he's coming back they really mm -hmm. did map this out really well oh yeah definitely like it's it's really well done it's very clever mm-hmm and you can even just see little looks that he's doing in the background where, yeah, he's the killer and he's trying to work out what he's going to do next mm -hmm. that you don't notice if you're watching it the first time. And I really got to give credit to Neil Affleck, who yeah, played Axel. Yeah, he's And surprisingly really not, didn't really do much acting wise. He's one of the founders of Nelvana Animation. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, yay, I love him. Nelvana. I love Nelvana. Rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> We're so cool, you guys. We're so cute. It's interesting how some of the smaller parts, like uh, Keith Knight as Hollis or Al, Hum Al Humphreys as Howard. I loved Hollis. Yeah, I cried the first time I watched it when he died. I was like, not Hollis. Hollis is like the coolest yeah, guy in the room. Yeah. He's my favorite character. That scene where they're in the bar and there's that fight between Axel and TJ. And he just and had locked both of them, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love it. And he's holding them both. It's just awesome. Or even just that great scene in the junkyard where, you know, TJ and Axel have that confrontation and Hollis just walks over there and just mm -hmm. has some words with his friends trying. He just wants his friends to get along and sort their shit out. I do like when they're uh, cooking up some food on the, uh, the, engine, the yeah. engine block. That was awesome, too. <laughs> Hollis is just the coolest guy around. And it's, oh, yeah. it's so sad that not only that he dies, but that he dies in a way that he still walks away from it mm -hmm. <laughs> with nails in his brain before dying. Yeah. And it's like when Patty gets upset, you get upset with her. You understand yeah. why. She, it's not like, oh, dead guy. Once dead. Hollis is dead, shit gets real. Yeah. Exactly. That's the point right there. Well, I just found it interesting that, you know, Hollis and Howard are both kind of the comic reliefs, but Hollis, when you need him in a pinch, he's there for you. Mm -hmm. he, he's there mm -hmm. for you if, if you get in a fight with your friends. He's there for you if there's danger in the mines and he needs to help get people out. Whereas Howard, he's just about the laughs. You know, if people aren't laughing at him, then he flips out and he doesn't know what to do. Well, yeah, you look mm -hmm. at... And in the mine where he just sort of runs He away. just becomes yeah. a coward and just runs and, you know, last man for himself, yeah. Yeah, it's like he completely takes off. He's supposed to stay there and watch the girls, and nope, just takes off like a wuss. Well, to be honest, I think Sarah has a better job of watching the girls than he did. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> totally. If he had stayed with them, he wouldn't have died. Mm-hmm. But I just, I find it interesting that the actor who played Howard and the actress who played Sarah actually went on to be pretty successful character actors of in Canada, whereas the guys who played TJ and Axel, the two main leads of this film, they haven't really done much acting outside well, of this. They did a few yeah. parts here and there. 
Yeah, but you look at the actor who played TJ. He like has him. a very Canadian accent. He does. <laughs> it's very maritime. Well, it was a Canadian. It was set in Canada, oh, so yeah. that's not, you know. Canadian made Canadian actors, yeah. I didn't know it was set in Canada. I know it was filmed in Canada. I don't know it was set in Canada. Well, I don't think they ever really no, say no, where no, it's set. No, not set in Canada. Yeah. yeah, they never say where Valentine Bluffs is. It is a Canadian production. I, I heard Axel drop the accent a few times, too. Oh, yeah. It was an adorable accent, mind you. <laughs> I really thought the guy playing TJ, Paul Kelman, he just had a really mm-hmm. good presence and a really good look to him. Oh, yeah. It's kind of a shame that he is, he still pops up in things every now and then, but he is a very sporadic acting career. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this whole setting up TJ to be the big red herring of the film? That was really well done, actually, because the way that they would play it Oh, the scenes when things would happen, neither Axel or TJ were around at that point. Mm-hmm. So it's just like when there's the minor coming after her, like at the end, where the, the only time where you know it's definitely not TJ is when it's him and Sarah on that thing at the very, very end of the film. And here's the thing is right, right. before that, you have the bit where she encounters the killer and the killer disappears. And then TJ shows up with the cut on his head. Mm-hmm. And by the way they're shooting it and the way they're doing the music... It's playing it up as though Sarah is making a mistake by trusting this man. Exactly. And then it's like they keep going, they go out and they go out and they draw it out. And then the killer appears and you're like, okay, it's not TJ. They play with it so well. I'm like, I want to find people who have never seen this and watch it with them because they are never going to guess. I think it's, it's just cleverly done. And you know what else is clever? The way they play the whole Harry Warden Mm. aspect of Mm. how he's kind of become this mythical boogeyman to the town. And then you have this genuine thing of where the sheriff and the mayor are trying to figure out what the hell did actually happen to Harry Warden. (laughs) Is this actually Exactly, because he essentially becomes a ghost. They call the institution and talk to that Mrs. Rowley, I think her Mm -hmm. name was. And she makes a comment about, you know, take your pick. He's either transferred, released, or on a slab. And I thought that was the best line ever. (laughs) Yeah. The thing is, if you look at it, he's sort of like the Freddy Krueger in the story. But it's because it only happened 20 years ago. So the kids would have been young enough where it had happened, but it would have still taken on like a form of myth to them. Except for Axel. Yeah. Well, I think they're all about the same age, more or less. No, no. Well, I mean, except for Axel, because he actually saw it, the killing happening in front of him. And so technically, Harry Warden is still the guy who's behind all everything. Mm-hmm. It's because of what he did that night that led to Axel's mindset and what happened exactly in these events. So Harry Warden is the dark past of this town that won't ever go away. Yeah, he manages to hang around even after he's dead, and Axel sort of takes up that mantle. He's haunted by it. The whole town's haunted by it. Well, and I think what it is is he snaps because they're going to have the dance because this is the first year that they've done it in like 20 years because before it would just, I'm guessing, quiet reflection on the fact that he kind of went on the killing spree. Right. Now we have a generation of kids who, you know, these are all the kids who are out of high school, but there are some kids who are still in high school at the party who, Mm -hmm. yeah, they're going to be so young that that was just a nothing to them. And they're like, why are we still having to run away from this? Yeah, exactly. And even the ones who would have been old enough, it's like, well, they would have been like, what, five or six? Even when you get the town elders, they're like, you know, yeah, maybe enough time has passed. Look, the kids just want to have fun. Exactly. And it's only when the hearts start showing up that they're like, oh, yeah. shit. <laughs> shit gets real. Exactly. Oh, you know, speaking of the younger generation, did you guys notice the two guys at the party, the one guy who goes into the kitchen and gets killed in the hot dog bowl? Mm-hmm. Him and his friend are basically TJ and Axel before the breakup. Yeah. 
You have the kind of brooding, dark-haired kid who has a girlfriend, and he's talking about how as soon as he graduates, he's going to leave town. Yeah. And his blonde best friend. <gasps> yeah, I totally saw that. And that was so awesome. who's the first person at the party that Axel kills? The guy who's basically TJ. TJ, yeah. TJ. Yeah, before the breakup happened. He's like getting TJ out of the so way, the guaranteeing of... that, yeah. The pattern yeah, you starts again. It as a pattern of proxy. Yeah. Because he kills the Sarah figure, the blonde at the beginning, mm -hmm. and then you have the TJ figure that he kills. And exactly. So it starts by proxy, and then it moves on to the actual killing of these people. And then I think the one that he killed in the shower—that was the first mm -hmm. stray that he could. He's basically just picking off the strays. But yeah, that it's just interesting that they really did set up these two young guys as TJ and Axel before this happened. And I love that ginger kid. Yeah. <laughs> I love that the ginger lives. I love you, ginger kid. I kept calling him the, the Weasley triplet. Yeah. He really, he totally, he totally was. He doesn't have a name anymore. He's just the Weasley triplet. And, and I love how they actually did set up that thing with the girlfriend of how he always has to pick her up mm -hmm. as she dies by having to be picked up. <laughs> it's just an interesting little visual thing that they set up. There. Yeah. That, it, again, this movie is so fucking clever. Well, and that was also the interesting thing is I, I really love the opening few minutes of this movie of how they really established the first they established the killer. Then they really established the mines as the people are coming out of it, where the shower room is, what the life is like for these people. You know, there's the guy who left and failed and had to come back and he's stuck in the mine again. We're all stuck in the mine again. Be happy about it. It's what we all do. You know, then they go out into the town and you have the whole bit where they're racing down the road in the cars and you establish the town. It's everything is just so beautifully set up. They make that comment about the methane. Um, oh, yeah, the, the methane, yeah. Blow the mine up again. And what's the response? We're not that lucky? Yeah, that yeah. they wouldn't blow up because they're not that lucky. Yeah. And then in the opening scene, they fully set up the showers. And then you have the hooks where the costumes are. And then in the later scene, that all comes into play with the showers and the costumes on the hooks. Yeah, all the different suits that they wear. That's mm -hmm. so awesomely done. Well, I, the thing is, oh, God, what does it remind me of? Because there's one director that totally does, like, the first 20 minutes or so. Because you get that initial kill, but then you get about, like, 15, 20 minutes of getting to know you time. Well, that's pretty much how films are supposed to be made. Well, that is. You got to set so up many everything, bring you into this world. It's world building, you know? That's... Yeah, but I mean... And it's done with a sort of an exposition dance kind of thing. It pulls you right into the story immediately because they set up the whole TJ and Axel thing pretty early on. And then it's just playing out this guy who's stuck in the small town he tried to escape from again. World building and character establishment done right. It's done thing. right, yes. This is how you do it well. Yeah, my only complaint about the world building or whatever is the bartender happy where he essentially does the exposition dance two or three times, just sort of explaining the past. Well, he's and supposed to be the voice of warning. He's the elder, he's the older generation that's trying to keep the young generation in line yeah. and failing. He sounds like he's telling campfire stories. That's what it is, is when he's telling the Harry Warden story, that's what it is. He's not showing the events entirely as they happen, he's showing the exaggerated myth that it's become. It's a campfire yeah. story. It is. It's trying to be a campfire story that warns the youthful generation, but they don't care because to them, that's all it is, is a campfire story. Yeah, it, it's essentially like telling someone, you know, one of the urban legends, like the Kentucky Fried Rat or something. And it, it was done to create Harry. I mean, like, I don't think Harry Warden was really stalking around the streets of the town and all that stuff like they showed. Mm -hmm. Or that the cannibalism scene was entirely as depicted. But this is the myth that Harry Warden has become. Even exactly. to people who knew him. It's had 20 years to build itself up. Yeah. 
and who knows how many times this guy has told that story and how it's kind of like blown up here and there in, yeah. in parts. Don't the characters hint that they've heard that story before? Yeah, kind of? yeah so it's entirely possible. This is something that's like, yeah, probably no, told around the town all the time, yeah. Yeah. It's the old Lizzie Borden took an axe, you know. and Gave uh, another 40 wax. Yeah. I thought of the director it was. It was Frank Capra who has that like 15, 20 minutes in the film. Oh, a lot of filmmakers get, do that, yeah. Yeah, but I mean like he's specifically famous for doing that with okay. the getting to know you time. Getting to know you. <laughs> How did I know that was going to happen? Sorry. He beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but I what I like about the old guy then is that he's like, you know, fine, I'm going to let them have their party at the mine, but I'm going to fuck with them. <laughs> Yeah, and he I tries love to set that up the dummy. Doing that. Yeah, and then yeah, he keeps doing it, and then whack! In the unrated version, there's like this whole big shot where the pickaxe is coming out through his eye, and his eyeball is hanging out. It's like it's I so didn't... much worse this way because I can imagine it looks like a makeup effect, and it's like mm -hmm. by just having the it's happen either off screen or at a distance. I mean, like you have that great distance shot where he's just dragging the corpse with the thing speared through his head. Yeah. That suggests far more than you can get by seeing it up close. Like, our minds will fill it in for you, so it's not like you have to show us, because whatever we imagine is going to be so much worse than anything they can show us on screen. Exactly. Exactly, because the individual viewer can basically impose any horror they want, and it's going to scare the shit out of them worse than anything the director could pull out. One of the big things that has always been held against this film, and part of this is because Fangoria did a big feature on it at the time when it was edited down, is that it was a compromised film because they didn't let it be as gory as it needed to be. And I'm like, you Fangoria know, can kiss my ass. It, if you're doing that, then it just becomes about gory kills. Then it's just another Friday the 13th film. As it exactly. is, it feels more grounded, and it feels more real, and it fits with the story better, and it fits with the characters better, it fits with this town better. It has more impact, I think, by being brief. Like, you know, we, even when you have the shot of uh, Mabel all burned up in the dryer, do you really need to see it any more than we do? Yeah, we don't really need to because all you have is you have like that one shot and then you have the sheriff. You can see he's like trying to stuff her back in so he doesn't have to smell that and look at her. Yeah. And I'm just like... Speaking of smelling... <laughs> mm -hmm. Either of you find it weird that when the chief and the mayor are in the truck and they open up the box with the heart in it, mm -hmm. that they didn't smell the rotting flesh at all? I don't think it would have been that it long. It takes time for something to start rot decomposing to that level. Yeah. You wouldn't smell the blood or anything like that because that was not a nice, clean sort of thing. No, well, the blood was just the blood, No, but the blood looks fresh well, in there. Actually, if you look at it when he's first handed the box by Howard... It does have this, this elephant wrap around on it. it. Yeah. But no, the blood in there is pretty fresh, too. So, yeah. Well, he could have also used Lysol or something. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's more likely that Axel refrigerated it. Because the thing is, there is a, probably a refrigerator within the town hall. So he just took it out of the yeah. fridge after and put it in where he wanted it found. At least it wasn't chocolate dipped. There we go. Oh, you know, speaking oh. of refrigerator, I love that, you know, they have that whole bit of let's kill the young TJ. But then mm -hmm. they hide his body and have someone go to the fridge and get something and doesn't even notice the body. <laughs> yeah, and then later on that girl comes out screaming. I love when they find the heart in the they hot like, dogs. Ew. Oh, Howard. <laughs> yeah. And then they just go, you have to wonder, you, people have been eating those hot dogs all night that have been boiling mm -hmm. with a heart and that a guy was Presumably drowned in. so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, well, I was, it was just bad. waiting for someone to take the heart out and actually put it on a hot dog bun or something. Dude, it was bad. Well, At least Hollis didn't see it. He'd probably make a sandwich. 
Yeah. It well, mm-hmm. you know what? It was bad enough that you had the young TJ proxy drowned in that water, and then putting that heart in there was just ugh. <laughs> like it's just so gross. And it's the heart that bothers you, not the boiling. Well, it's sterilized no, it and fully bad, cooked. No, it was bad enough that it was water that that kid had been killed, and that was bad enough. The heart was just like the frosting at that point. <laughs> When it comes to the cutting of the gore in this movie, the only bit where I don't think it quite works is in the end, Mm -hmm. where it feels like there's been a chop taken out there, where they find Axel's arm reaching through. And the thing is, his hand was still supposed to be moving, and she was supposed to grab his hand, and then the arm was supposed to come off. Well, no, it was supposed to be that the hand grabs her, and it's pulling her, and then eventually he chops off his own hand. Yeah. I don't quite entirely know why why they had to cut that bit. I don't think it was particularly too gruesome, but... Yeah, that's the only time where you, or it's like they should have inserted that back in. But otherwise... Even when Hollis is getting killed and it's very obscured, mm-hmm. it still works really well. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, you like Hollis, so... His... With Hollis is just so haunting the way that he walks away from his own death. Yeah. With his eyes rolling up and yeah. Speaking of gory kills, you have the um, the one death of the woman in the shower. They had it where you see her getting paled and the water coming out of her mouth. I actually really like the image they have where you just see it in the corner of the screen, her mouth with the water streaming mm-hmm. out of it. Yeah, this probably was compromised and didn't fully reflect the director's vision, but it still works really well. Exactly. I thought it was yeah. a very neat image. It yeah. almost reminded me of like a fountain or something like that. Yeah. I don't know, something straight out of Europe. Well, that and plus it plays a lot off of the reaction of Ginger Kid when he comes in and finds her. Yeah. This is true. And then you really feel bad for him because those two yeah. are so cute together. <laughs> That's the thing is I'm like, none of these characters piss me off. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then you see how shattered he is by the whole incident is like in the next film. Is he going to pick up the pickaxe? Yeah. It's like he's so broken at this point. Yeah. And oh, there was the other great line in that scene was, you know what we need? Yeah, I got one right here. The condom? No, beer. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That was what was surprising is there was no nudity or explicit sex in this slasher film. Because yeah. that had, you know, Friday the 13th had already come out, so that but was already... What is it with minds and sex, though? I'm sort of lost in how minds are so incredibly sexy that we have... They're a um, vaginal tunnel orifice? Have... I don't know. Well, <laughs> you have that one where I'm guessing it's probably just Axel's kink to take that... I- I'm calling her a prostitute, so to take her down to the mind, it's probably because just... Because it's the like... ultimate seclusion from the outside world? I don't know. And the thing is, the only other couple that's kind of getting it on are that other girl and that other guy whose names I've totally forgotten. Yeah, I know, the ones who sneak off. Yeah. And I'm like, they're the only other ones. Oh, yeah, so... the back in 10 minutes. Yeah. Back in 10 minutes. 20 minutes later. Yeah. They're still doing <laughs> it. 30 <laughs> minutes later. Oh, now they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, those two. I'm like, they're the only other couple that you have that's down there. So really, I think it's just two horny people and Axel and his weird kink of weirdness. Yeah. Again, I, I still think that opening scene just feels a little tagged on. I think it works. I mean, it, it, it works. I, know, I just I don't feel it in the entire course of the story. Mm-hmm. I don't know, because I think, you know, if you take that out and you just open with people coming out of the mine and the first death is Mabel, who's the one who's running the Valentine's Day party, it still works as motivation for him. I think, that, yeah, I think it is a good point that, I, you know, what it, it could be that it was tacked on because you don't get a kill for a while otherwise. Right. So I think they needed you, to add a kill. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's like they put that in there because that way you get a kill within like the first minute of the movie. And also like, oh wait, where does he get that first heart that he sends, you know? Yeah. Well, there you go, yeah. So really that's why they did it because they needed an explanation for where he got that first heart. Yeah. (laughs) And why no one was looking for her because she was a hooker. It was the hooker with a heart of boob. (laughs) (laughs) You can't laugh and then do a slow clap. It's the first time I've gotten totally applause can't. on this show. <laughs> you deserve it for that one. It was hilarious. <laughs> oh, with the deaths and the hearts and the whatnot, mm-hmm. can I just say that I loved the little poems left with yes. the hearts and the chocolate boxes? And the- yeah. I want those on greeting cards. My only issue was that the last one was, you didn't stop the party. Yeah, I'm like, that doesn't rhyme. You have to think Axel had maybe thrown back a few by that point. And he's like, uh, what rhymes with it? Uh, screw it. You didn't stop the party. <laughs> I hate you guys. You suck. We are no longer PFFs. <laughs> yeah, the first thing with those poems that I thought of was uh, 500 Days of Summer and the Roses are Red Violets are Blue. Fuck you, whore. <laughs> the first and... thing I thought of was uh, Valentine with Roses are Red, Violets are Blue. They'll need dental records to identify you. Oh, which one was oh, that from? it's interesting where we go with those. Which one was that from? Valentine. It was the David Boreanaz. Val- okay, yeah. I went to high school with the kid who played little David Boreanaz. I knew I heard that somewhere. As, you know, oh, God, Valentine. Yeah. I even read the novel. <laughs> oh, God, why did you read the... You know what? No, you're Noel. That's why you read the novel. It's actually... It, there's only, like, two scenes and the basic setup come from the novel. Everything else is completely original to the film. They pretty much pitched the novel into their own thing. Oh, good. Anyways, but yeah, and then I also love that this movie ends on a folk song. Ballad was the best. Well, I think that's something that they did back then, because you look at something like Last House on the Left. Yeah. Oh, it perfectly fits the atmosphere of the movie. It kind of fits the whole kind of generational mythic aspect of the movie and of how this has become a legend and this has become a ballad that's going to be repeated time and again fabric of the society and so you have these ballads you have this idea of almost um mythos for the city to the point where it becomes the subject of music in the same way you have all these other murder ballads out there Um, Mm -hmm. nick cave and the bad seeds put out a whole album of those kind of things yeah no but uh this is something that they used to do back then in movies like you had if you watch i think it's a combination of the two evie we're all right oh yeah but (laughs) whereas nowadays we don't do that but, but it's interesting that in, instead of trying to do like kind of a poppy thing, it's just let's just do an old folk ballad. And it really yeah. fits the atmosphere of the whole picture in this town. And, and they never said what it was that TJ left for. But am I the only one who wondered, was it a musician? No, no, I didn't think it was. Probably not. The only suggestion that there was of that was the whole harmonica duet thing. But I don't know. They never explained why he left or where he wanted. Other than he just wanted to get out of the town. It was just a way to escape. Yeah. And... And you Maybe just couldn't just find a way to sustain it. To try anything, something, just being away from the town. Mm-hmm. I assumed it was yeah. for fishing because it's West Coast and we have fisheries out here. So oh, you know, he just wanted to get away from coal mining. That makes sense. Couldn't you imagine that you just want to be away from that kind of industry because the fisheries and fishing isn't a whole lot different from the coal mining and the idea of manual labor, just this sort of, not institutional, 
but yeah but you're not underground if you look at it he's underground the entire time he'd rather take anything else Yeah, i mean if you look at the way they're covered in soot you know all that stuff you're getting in your lungs it's just this is a thing where every guy who graduates pretty much goes down into the mines the moment they get out of high school and i also wondered if maybe he wanted to go to college or something like that i don't know and then also you know he has the extra expectations hitting on him because he is the son of the guy who owns the mine Exactly, yeah. It is the Hanneker Mines, and he's T.J. Hanneker. They never fully explored that. Like, I'm surprised we never saw his father at all in the course of the story, but... Yeah, we do. the relationship do we? between... Yeah, we do get the dad. Where? I, I know there's the mayor, mayor and I know Hanniger. there's the sheriff. The mayor is, is Hanneker. The mayor is his dad. Well, now I feel stupid. You are too. I didn't pick up I, that that oh. was his dad. I just pictured that that was the mayor. Okay. Oh, no, I totally picked up on that because he's talking about... Uh, I didn't pick up that his talking. last name was Hanniger, yeah. Yeah. No. Okay, so I'm smart for once. There you go. Yes! Done. Congratulations. Sprinkler head dance. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. No dancing. I really like the mayor and the sheriff in this movie. They're really well acted, actually, which, you know, it could have come across as... Uh... You, you know, you could question the entire aspect of why are they trying to keep this all hush-hush? Yeah. But they are trying to alleviate a panic, and in doing so, they make things worse. Exactly, So, yeah. And they end up having to suffer for that. I'm kind of impressed that the film never killed either one of them. Yeah, because it's like you would think that they would be the first to go, if anything. Right, but, you know, the mayor is the person that he's trying to warn. And mm -hmm. he knows that they're trying to shut down the party. Once he kills Mabel, he mm -hmm. knows these two guys are trying to shut down the party. And he's just trying to further their motivation to shut down the party. Like when he kills the, the bartender, he's like, you didn't shut down the party. Yeah. And by that point, he's drunk and just going after his friends. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because he's like, I'm upset. And I don't have my lab journal to write in because that won't be created for many years. I can just totally <laughs> picture the guy in the big mining suit. I'm upset. <laughs> like, if only... really bad poetry. <laughs> Dude, if only there was live journal or Twitter, maybe. Um... You know what shocks me is that in the opening scene of the movie, it becomes like with Jason and Michael Myers is this big thing to have like the big silent stone blank faced killer. And mm -hmm. he actually speaks in the opening scene of the movie. I mean, he, he yeah. just says no, but still it's it's a word. And it's like suddenly you realize this is a man. This is not trying to be some supernatural beast. This is a guy in a suit. And it works that way because as the whole story goes, this is a guy who's just he's been broken and he's just unleashing his rage. And it just this is how he does it. And I don't find that humanizing the killer actually detracted from the threat of the killer at all. If anything, it made it more interesting. He manages to be both the myth and the man, the idea and the person. Exactly. Like you're talking about how he picks up sort of this mantle, yet he's still Axel, this hurting five-year-old boy, really. By the end of the film, he's pretty much snapped, but I never really got the sense over the course of this picture that this guy was completely insane or schizophrenic or anything. It feels very intentional. Yeah. And it feels driven by him and his personality and, and his history and all that stuff. It doesn't feel like he is flipping a switch and not doing this stuff intentionally. Yeah, it feels like this is very much Axel is doing it himself. And it's only by the end that, you know, he got wasted. He just started tearing his friends to pieces. He's mm -hmm. just, it, all the consequences are sinking in. And then suddenly he gets trapped in a cave-in. The exact same mm -hmm. thing that happens to Harry. And then that's like the final snapping point. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, from there on, he's absolutely gone. Yeah. And then just, yeah, the way that he's just babbling as he's going off. Won't you well, be my bloody valentine? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially when he's running away. Won't you away. be my bloody valentine? 
and he starts singing that little ditty Harry, about yeah. um oh my exactly. god and, and that laugh at then the it leads end. into that ballad well right before then you get that laugh that i'm like well if anyone needs me my blood will be curdling yeah this isn't really an insane killer but over the course of the film he goes insane mm-hmm it grows worse and worse. I mean, you, you could argue that he's insane because he's killing to begin with, but you feel that there is intention and there is motivation behind it. I'm not defending it, but still. But there is an intent, obviously. Like, they decided they're going to throw a big party on the day that he lost his dad, brutally. So he's kind of like, uh, no. He's like, you know, there's a reason why we aren't having this party, and I want you to remember what that reason is. Yeah, and it's like, and it makes sense. It's like, and then eventually he just snaps. And by the end, yeah, so much stuff has happened. Initially, he didn't want to kill his friends. He just mm -hmm. killed who he felt he had to to get the party started. And then everything goes to shit. His girlfriend dumps him. You know, he gets into the big fight at the party. He's throwing back beers and he just, fuck it. I'm just going to kill whoever I come across. And I don't think it was even that she was his girlfriend. I think she was his fiance because I caught the glimpse of the ring finger on her left hand. And she's got a ring on there. So I was just like, oh, well, she's supposed to be his fiance then. Hmm. Because that would be even worse. That that could just be me projecting. It might though. also just be the actress forgot to take it off on the shoot that day. Yeah, but it, again, it's a, it's a worth. I mean, because this is a film that suggests a lot that it doesn't flat out say. Mm -hmm. So it could have been exactly. intentional. I don't think they're engaged at all because when Sarah's walking down the street with her friend, mm -hmm. and her friend's making the comments about, "Oh, you have to choose number one or number two kind of. Yeah, thing. but her friend's being really cute about it too. So. Hmm. They could be engaged, and her friend just isn't taking the fact that her friend is engaged that seriously. Could be. I think that Paul Kalman is as hot as Jensen Ackles. I said it. Boom. You went there. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, people? And he's more interesting. Um, yes. Definitely. And I like that he's got the ascot. He actually reminded me a bit of Rufus Sewell. Yes. Oh, my God. That's who he reminds me of. Yeah, Thank Rufus you. Sewell. Yeah. No, he totally Thank has that you. look, yeah, too. Rufus Sewell. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like he has that ascot, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but if he gets trapped down in the mind and he needs something to put around just for breathing, he's got something. Exactly. That's probably an old minor thing is you always have something that you can stick over your mouth if you need to. It's damn clever. Plus, he wears it rather fashionably. Even when he's in the mine, he's got like the suit down so you can see a bit of the chest hair. He's wearing that minor suit like a leisure suit. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's just a damn good movie. It is. So do we want to maybe wrap this up into final thoughts or anything else we want to add? Or I think we should just go to final thoughts. All right. Final thoughts. We all still like the movie. Yeah. Watch this movie <laughs> if you haven't and just just go watch it now. Otherwise. Essentially, yeah. 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 The dynamic between Axel, Sarah, and TJ in this film is incredible because you've got these two guys who obviously were best friends at a time and even now even when it's sort of broken there's still that affection because tj when he's in the car talking with hollis he says i really do like that son of a bitch well yeah what i like is tj he obviously does hold himself responsible for this stuff there's a lot of guilt in his anger exactly and just the frustration with the situation with Sarah and Axel. And then in the end, when TJ and Axel go to rescue Sarah together, it's so apropos because they're friends and they're both in love with this girl, but they also are sort of in competition with this and they still manage to want to kill one another. They hate each other's guts. And the character of Sarah is surprisingly competent too. 
mm-hmm. and just the way the three of them interact, where she asserts herself and where... Um, oh, yeah, even in the bit on the cart where the two are fighting, she jumps in and helps. She mm-hmm. doesn't just huddle cowering in a corner. Yeah, she's not like... Yeah, and she's shoving her friend up the ladder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, she takes charge. Yeah, at one point where uh, you have Patty who's kind of freaking out and she's just like, Moet! All three of them are great characters, really strong protagonists, and they're just good actors, too. You review a lot of young adult literature, and there's been this big debate mm-hmm. about should the romantic triangle be done away with? This is a good example of how to do a romantic triangle well. You have to like both guys equally. And you have to understand why both work in a relationship and why she would be conflicted between the two. Mm-hmm. If he weren't a killer, Axel wouldn't be a bad guy to be with. Yeah. Definitely not. Definitely not. And TJ, yeah, he's, he obviously blames himself for a lot of it, but he can be a bit of a dick, too. Yeah. <laughs> because he takes that rage that he builds up and he kind of takes it out on others. There's the point where Sarah is going to put the money in the jukebox and Axel says, where are you going? And right there, he sounds like a jerkwad. Yeah. And like you said, TJ's not innocent of that either. But for the most part, he's just sort of this broody outcast yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, because it's Whereas like she Axel- goes over to the jukebox and he's like, he turns around and starts playing, I guess, like table hockey or whatever it is that he's playing. And he's being super brood. Yeah, but even then, mm-hmm. she's like saying, you know, it's it's your fault. You know, he's, I never said it wasn't. Yeah. You know, and it's more like he's just, you know, he has a lot of anger towards not himself bitter. Bitter and he's just all. externalizing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, what I like is that it's a character flaw, but it's a realistic character flaw. Exactly. That's a very realistic thing for people to do is when they screw up and they feel really angry and guilty about it is to, yeah, take it out on someone else. What I like is that the film acknowledges that, yes, dude, it was your fault and that he realizes, <laughs> yes, dude, it was his fault. He just often gets lost in his emotions at times. And, you know, Axel does the same. This entire movie is Axel getting lost in his emotions. Mm-hmm. Neither one of these are particularly great guys, but they are very real guys. Exactly. It's not like one is super sparklingly awesome and how could she not go with this guy who's exactly. just super. They're both, I mean, what I like about all these characters in this entire town is none of these are perfect people, but they're real people, you know? This feels like a real population in a real small town. These feel like people who really did grow up together and really were friends. And, you know, yeah, they screw up at times. Yeah, they can be stupid. Yeah, they can make mistakes. But never in a way that feels out of the realm of realism. Exactly. Yeah. And that doesn't just apply to Axel and TJ. No, I know. You exactly. can say that about the entire crew. Everyone yeah. is like that. They're flawed. I mean, Hollis takes the girls down to the mines, yeah. even though that's probably the stupidest thing to do. You even have the town elders covering up the murders. Mm-hmm. You have Howard turning into a complete asshole coward. You have Patty freaking out. You know, it's... They're idiots, but... But it makes sense. It's the kind of idiocy you would expect in real life kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is how people would... Re- these people, if they were real and they feel real, would react in a real situation. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's very intelligent in that respect. I hold this on the same level as I do Halloween. Yeah, no, it's as cleverly put together as Halloween. Yeah, overall, this was just an enjoyable watch. Yeah, absolutely. And really, I think that's what it comes down to. It's an intelligent, enjoyable, realistic watch. I've seen this film probably about six, seven times by now, and it holds up. 
there's so much going on and so much depth to the material and there's so much richness there. You can even just spend the entire film watching things in the background and you'll discover all these things like that whole bit of, you know, these are the mirror image of TJ and Axel when they were younger, you know, just little things that they slip in there. And it's a really well put together film. I mean, it, it's take the slasher element out of it. It's still a damn good film. But as a slasher film, it's a great slasher film and it's a great film apart from being a slasher film. Exactly. Yeah, it could have almost stood on its own as this study of a small town and the yeah, psychology this of all Yeah, whole small town character. romantic thing and drama and, and I'm just babbling words now. <laughs> I have no, many no, words. No, no. <laughs> yeah, um, but... It's not babble, it's truth. If there's people out there who don't like slasher movies, but they really like films, this is what I would show them. I wouldn't show them Halloween. I wouldn't show them Friday the 13th. I wouldn't show them Nightmare on Elm Street. I would show them this. Because the slasher aspect is very understated, but very striking. But still, it's a really good, solid film. A great character piece. A great piece about a small town. This should be like the gateway drug to slasher films. Hell yeah. Because it was one of the first ones I discovered when I was a teenager. First time it's free. But you find me when you need more. <laughs> That's the slogan sorry, of the hooker sorry, with a heart really of boo. <laughs> oh. You get one for free, but you got to pay for the pair. I'm now ignoring both of you. <laughs> you can only hold out for so long. Well, I think this is going to bring part one to a close. All right. Thank you for joining us, Mac. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. All right. Good night, Evie. I hate you all forever. Good night. A legend began. Every woman and man would always remember the time. And those who remained were never the same. You could see the fear in their eyes Once To read show notes for this and every one of our episodes, please visit IHateLoveRemakes.com The comment sections are open, so let us know what you think about the films discussed. I Hate Love Remakes is in no way affiliated with the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. I Hate Love Remakes is a Made of Fail production. Madeoffail.net We were unpopular before it was cool. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. Je t'aime. Je t'aime aussi, mon cher. Ouh là là. <laughs> Est-ce que tu veux me parler français pour le prochain? No. Non. Non? Pas de français? <laughs> pourquoi pourquoi est-ce que tu n'aimes pas la langue de l'amour? I don't understand French. Stop it. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> Mais c'est très amusant. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you find me amusing. Non, 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 non. Pas toi. <laughs> I wish I still remember Japanese to throw at you. <laughs> Ha <laughs> <laughs>